Good morning. Those that I've used to have the privilege of knowing well, it's so nice to see you all again. Those I'm looking forward to getting to know, it's nice to meet you. Jared, married to Sarah. Sarah will be with us at the 10.45. She's not great at early morning services, in her view. Uh, we, le- we were here for six years, from 2012 to 2018, and uh, we worked for, as missionaries for OMF. We used to live in northwest China. I did my doctorate in uh, Islamic, <coughs> Islamic identity, working out good ways of being able to con- communicate the gospel of Jesus with Muslim people. So if you're a bit worried why you've got an Islamic scholar teaching, it's not a Muslim scholar who's teaching. It's somebody who understands Islam with a purpose to be able to explain Jesus to them. Uh, And I'll say a little bit more, maybe, in the middle of the sermon about what we do currently, because we're mission partners with the church, and we're really grateful for your prayerful uh, and all your support that you give us. But let's turn, with God's help, to this wonderful text. I've enjoyed watching the previous three sermons. I watched them last week. It's great that they're recorded because then you can keep up and make sure you're in the series. And I want you to remember right at the beginning that when we come to the book of Revelation, what Sean taught us in the first week, that he said we have to remember two things when we come to texts in the book of Revelation. The two things are these. First, this is apocalyptic literature. That means it's a genre that we're really unfamiliar with. We don't have a lot of apocalyptic. It means revealing, unveiling. We don't have that sort of literature very much. We're not very familiar with it, which explains why it feels so strange so often. And so we need to read it with great care. Frankly, bits of revelation can seem utterly bizarre. And you're really wondering what on earth is going on. And Sean reminded us that we're not meant to zoom in on the detail and try and work out what every little bit means. We don't approach Revelation as though it's a code that needs to be cracked. And that's a mistake that many people make. Better is to draw back and look at the panoramic, the big picture view that God might reveal his truth to us. And that's what we're going to try and do this morning. That's the first thing to remember. The second thing is to remember that all Scripture is (laughs) God-breathed. And it's all useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, including Revelation. And so we're meant to read it. And I must admit, in my Christian life, I've not read it as often as other portions of the Bible. (laughs) Because it's a challenging text. But it's the Word of God for us. But it was first revealed as the Word of God to a particular people. To first-century Christians who were facing extreme persecution to the point of expecting martyrdom to be killed for their faith. And this is a revelation from God given to John to encourage a persecuted, suffering church to persevere, to keep going, to hold on. We must remember those two things. And we read just two brief passages When the brief was sent out to the preachers in the team, Sean had written down, you can choose anything from chapter 8 to 18. (laughs) But I recommend these two texts, and that's what we've done. Exactly what Sean recommended we should do. The idea is that we've looked at two samples, if you like, in the midst of a big chunk of revelation. But before we even get to what we read, I want you to be reminded of what's going on here. So, In Revelation 4-2, John, 
in exile on Patmos, the follower, the apostle of Jesus, he's taken up in the spirit to the very throne room of God. It says in Revelation 4, 2, at once I was in the spirit and there before me was a throne in heaven. And throughout the text, if you look carefully, you will see John writing over and over again, and I saw, and I saw, and I heard, and I heard. All the time, all this is what John is seeing and hearing in the Spirit in his great vision. And the central section of what he sees and hears are three bizarre sets, seemingly bizarre sets of judgments. Highly schematized, seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven bowls. And if you were to spend your Sunday afternoon reading these chapters, it makes very hard reading indeed. Some of the imagery is shocking. Much of it is extremely puzzling. And the destruction that we read is horrific. It's horrific. There are strange images. There are strange creatures. There are all these figures appearing. And we want to know, who do they signify? Who are the four horsemen of the apocalypse? Who is the beast? Who is the dragon, the Jezebel? All these figures that are here in Revelation, we want to know, who do these represent? But that's our mistake at going zooming down into detail again and not drawing back in a panoramic view to a revelation, a pulling back of the curtain that gives us a heavenly perspective, a throne room perspective of the righteous judgment of a holy God. The righteous judgment of a holy God. The seven seals in chapter 6 and 7, the seven trumpets in chapters 8 and 9, and the seven bowls in chapters 15 and 16 are different ways of, announce, of announcing and showing the pouring out of the wrath of God on a sinful, rebellious world. That doesn't sound like a very encouraging topic, does it, for a Sunday morning? And you might think, why did I get out of bed this morning to come and hear this? But remember, this is God's word for us. And what we're going to see here, I pray this morning, is the reality of the extreme darkness in our world as a result of the judgment of God that is being poured out before it's finally poured out at the end. And it's a darkness in the world that is consistent with the experience of the persecution that the early church was facing. And actually it's a darkness that many of our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world face equally today. And it's a darkness that maybe you're facing at a different level as well. Maybe you're experiencing a measure of darkness in your life, in your personal circumstances. Things go wrong all the time and you cry out, what is going on? Why, Lord? But what I want us to see is that this darkness is tinged with light. And when we finally get to the blowing of the seventh trumpet in Revelation 11, light floods in. 
And this is meant to encourage us, encourage the people then, and encourage us in the midst of your suffering, in the midst of persecution, in the midst of the horrors of living in our world today, be encouraged. We're going from darkness, but light is coming. Light is coming. And that's the theme for the sermon, from darkness to light. First, thinking about the darkness. I've said already, chapters 6, 8, and 9 particularly make grim reading. The horrors of the judgment of God poured out when the seals are opened and the trumpets are blown and the bowls are tipped out. But we read in chapter 9 from verse 20 these words. The rest of mankind that were not killed by the plagues still did not repent of the work of their hands. They didn't stop worshipping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone and wood. Idols that can't see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality or their thefts. It's hard for us to really describe or understand how horrifically dark the ancient world was, the Greco-Roman world. It's hard for us to grasp that. A long time ago, life was cheap. Exploitation was just normal. If people today are lamenting that our society is turning back to a pre-Christian society, we're still somewhat inured against the horrors of the Greek-Roman world. There's a popular historian called Tom Holland. Some of you will have read some of his work. Dominion most recently came out a couple of years ago. And he writes well about how he learnt that it was Christianity, the coming of Christianity, that utterly transformed the value system of what was a horrifically amoral Greco-Roman world. We came to know that rampant exploitation and abuse of people is wrong. It was just normal back then. We came to know that injustice and inequality are wrong. That extreme sexual deviance and predation is wrong. Rampant paganism and godlessness is wrong. We can only imagine what it would have been like to live where all that horror was accepted as normal. Horrific. At the root of Christian theology is the existence of a creator God who is good, who is holy, who is righteous in all his ways, who is just and all-powerful. And this God has revealed himself to us in the scriptures and then ultimately in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ through whom he demonstrated a perfect, holy, loving character. And what we need to remember, and it's hard to hold on to, is that the perfect love and the holy wrath of God are complementary characteristics. It's who he is. His perfect love and his wrath against evil and rebellion, they're complementary. A wrathful God makes us feel really uncomfortable in 21st century Britain. Until we start to work out what wrath actually is. Because an angry God definitely sounds really unattractive. Don't tell me God's angry. I don't need to hear that. We're not talking, though, 
about a grumpy grandpa. We're not talking about a bad-tempered, capricious dictator who might lash out in a moment and do something horrific, you know, zap some people like this. Lashing out on a whim. We're talking about a loving father, creator of all, who cannot look on sin. Holy wrath is complementary to a perfect love. How could we understand that? The only parallel really that we've got, I think, is for us to think for a moment about someone we deeply love. Maybe a child. The love of a parent for a child. Or a spouse. Or a really close friend. Think of the love you have for that person. And then think, how do you feel when that person's attacked, harmed, abused, exploited? Nothing makes me more angry than somebody trying to hurt my children. Nothing makes me more mad than my kids going through trouble. And I'm an imperfect human father. My love is way less than the love of God. And my wrath, likewise, is way less than the love of God, the wrath of God. His love is greater and therefore so is his wrath. And his righteous response to evil, to sin and rebellion is wrath. But remember, brothers and sisters, never forget that for those who belong to Jesus, that wrath has been poured out upon him upon the Messiah, on the cross. He bore the wrath of God. He stood in our place. He's made a way that the wrath of God does not land upon us, but on the person of Jesus. God's righteous wrath does not fall on those who are in Christ. And that's a real encouragement for those who maybe haven't yet taken that step of putting their trust in the crucified Messiah. What Revelation is showing us is that God's judgment is being poured out on the world in the present, but it is getting worse. And one day, the full judgment of God is being poured out on that day of the Lord. And John sees and hears this from a heavenly perspective. But Jared, you said there was a glimmer of light. Listen, there's always a glimmer of light here in Revelation. Although you see the judgment of God on rebellious people, I want you to notice two things about that judgment. First, the judgment is limited until the final judgment comes. And second, the judgment has a purpose, and that's to bring people to repentance. Judgment's limited. If you were to spend time reading through this, you'd see that the judgments are restricted in their scope and extent when the fourth seals opened it's only one quarter of the earth that can be effective symbolic it's a limited judgment the judgments under God's sovereign care it's limited to a quarter when the trumpets blow it becomes a third and one day it will be unlimited that's a glimmer of light because God is sovereignly in control of his world. It's not that he's kind of sat down on the throne now and let evil have its day and like all this stuff that's going on is completely beyond him. God is fully in control and has purpose 
in the limited pouring out of wrath in these days. What is the purpose? Well, it was right there in Revelation 9.20. The rest of mankind did not repent. Like Pharaoh back in the day, heart was hardened. God handed him over to his hard heart. He did not repent. He did not repent. The goal is that people would come to Jesus in repentance and be sealed with the Spirit and therefore not have the wrath of God poured out upon them. Why don't people believe? Why don't people come to Jesus? It's a free offer. It's open to all. Evil is judged and will be eliminated from our world. That's a comfort if you're one who's being persecuted. Evil will be eliminated. A huge source of comfort and joy. The darkness does not last. The darkness does not win. So there's a warning here in Scripture. In the midst of these fiery trials and persecutions the church is facing that's going to increase, we are called to endure and to persevere because the flood of light is coming. But before we get to that flood of light in Revelation 11, there's one other thing we are called to do. We endure, we persevere. But in chapter 10, that little scroll is all about the other thing we're called to do. And that is to proclaim the gospel. John is told, the bit we didn't read afterwards, to eat the scroll. Uh-huh. To eat, like loads of those Old, prophet, Old Testament prophets got to eat the scroll, didn't they? This is like a, a, taking in the message of God's salvation so it can be broadcast. And the message of God's saving work is bittersweet. It's sour in the stomach because it's a message of judgment. And that's why you feel a bit sick when you read some of this revelation. It's like, it's horrible. It's sour. But it's sweet too because it's a message in the mouth of salvation in Christ. A bittersweet message of salvation and judgment that the church has been entrusted with. And John's told in chapter 10 and verse 11 that he is to prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages and kings. That should remind you of those famous verses in chapter 5 and 7 but all the people gathered before the great throne from all these different places in the world should remind you of the call of Christ to go into all the world with the gospel. It should remind you of Christ saying, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. It's a prophetic call to mission. Right here in the heart of the judgment, the mission of the church, as we wait for the final flooding of the light to come when Jesus returns, were to persevere and to proclaim, to persevere in our faith and proclaim the gospel. Sarah and I are mission partners with you. We work for OMF, an international mission agency focused on the peoples of East Asia. We exist so that every person in East Asia has an opportunity to hear the gospel of the Lord Jesus before it's too late. That's a lot of people, big population. We served in China. Today in the north of England where we're focused, we are inspiring, equipping and recruiting workers to go short and long term to Asia. But if you read our letters, you'll see that a lot of our work is actually helping churches here and Christian unions and Christian groups to share with people from other cultures right where they are. 
So I have a lot of opportunity amongst Muslim peoples in West Yorkshire where I live and we work with Christian unions to welcome Asian students, Indian students, people from all over the world to introduce them to Jesus. And we're grateful for your partnership. It's critical that all peoples, nations and languages have a chance to hear and to repent. Because the time of darkness is limited. The time of darkness is reign is limited. The power of evil is restrained and under God's sovereign hand. And that second passage that we read in Revelation 11 is the moment when the last trumpet sounds. The last of the seven trumpets sounds and the end comes. This is the end. And we read in verse 15, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he will reign forever and ever. It's light flooding into the darkness. The kingdom of God fully established. The one who is and who was has now come. The nations raged against the Lord and his anointed and his wrath was poured out but it's a wrath that lasts only a moment. And his favor lasts a lifetime, says Psalm 30. Forever, eternally. Weeping lasts for a night, but joy comes in the morning. And this final eternal morning has dawned in Revelation 11:15. As Jesus returns, Christ comes back. The temple of God in heaven is opened. The ark is revealed. Oh, it's a picture of absolute light flooding into the darkness. It's a picture of Revelation 21 when we get there. My brothers and sisters here in Holy Trinity Coombe Down, this is where history is heading. This final trumpet is nearer today than it was yesterday. I can promise you that. <laughs> it's nearer today than it was yesterday. Because one day, the time of the Lord's grace between his two comings will come to an end. And his kingdom will come in all its fullness. And that's the basis of our confidence as Christians in a challenging age. This is our faith. It's grounded in the identity and the work of the one who was and is and is to come. That's a phrase frequently used in Revelation to describe Jesus. The one who was and is and is to come. In Revelation 11, the is to come bit isn't mentioned because he's come. <laughs> he's returned. He's called the one who was and who is. But the one who was points back to his incarnation. Points back to his pre-existence with God before the creation of the earth. But points to his death and resurrection. The decisive event in salvation history has happened at the cross. The one who is points to the present time where we who are in Christ enjoy abiding in him, enjoy his real presence by his spirit in us, encouraging us, comforting us, reminding us of all Jesus taught. And we see signs of the coming kingdom. We get a foretaste of glory divine. All this is to encourage us to persevere in the now. And we see the one who is to come because he's coming back. The last trumpet and final day will come. Heaven will come down to earth. The new age will dawn. There'll be a complete defeat and removal of all the enemies of sin, death, evil, sickness, 
and of Satan. And that's where we're going. That's what we fix our hearts and minds on as we face the trials and tribulations of living in the not yet of our beautiful but broken world. The end is certain. The kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ and he will reign forever. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Amen.